So, what a morning. It's great, like most of my preachers already come out, so that's, that's fantastic. I'm, so I'm standing, here, I'm standing here with fairly empty hands after all of that. Uh, Emily, uh, between Emily and David, you've kind of just like, I can, I, d- I can't actually, I need that. By the two or three Indeed, indeed. Thank you very much, Brian. So, whew, great morning, great morning. Um, so, last time I was up here, I think I started by talking about how much I love movies. Still love movies. <laughs> Think, things don't change that fast. Um, so one of the things, one of the kind of movie tricks that I love, they've got all these great little tricks they use, they're like little cutaway shots, they, they do their flashbacks. One of the things I really like is when you, you turn on a movie, you've got no idea what it's about, and you are straight in at the end of the movie. They start the film with the end of the movie, they show you this fantastic scene, and you've got no idea what's going on. And then, just as things are about to hit crescendo, they go, take you right back to the beginning. It's, uh, I th- you know, Quentin Tarantino made a whole career out of that. Um, and so, that's what I'm going to do with this preach this morning. I'm going to start by finishing. I'm going to walk you through the four takeaway points of this preach, and then we're going to go into Esther. So the first thing I want you to take away this morning is that when the balance of power is against us, it is an illusion. Because we have the all-powerful God on our side. If God is for us, then who can be against us? And therefore, we can always have hope in the face of trials. Number two, God deals with sin absolutely. The cross In the cross, everything is covered. That is why Jesus says it is finished, not it's almost finished or it's mostly finished. It is finished. When we deal with sin in our life, it is absolutely necessary that we deal with the issues completely. Thirdly, God's judgment on sin is absolute. It is therefore dangerous for us to entertain it and tolerate it in our lives. Number four, where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. But the access to grace and our experience of grace comes through faith and obedience to God. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, this is the gift of God. All right. Keep those in your mind. I will repeat them at the end. This is what I want you to take away this morning. So getting back to Esther. I love the book of Esther. And like I say, I'm a very visual guy. So the book of Esther, I've always enjoyed it because in my mind, it plays like a movie. It's so good. It's, It's so well put together. It's a literary piece of art, in my opinion. You know, it's such a strong narrative. It, it flicks from, from narration to, to, um, to dialogue. It gives you just enough information to follow the story without telling you anything you don't need to know. And it's absolutely fantastic. In that way, it's brilliant. It's not unique, though, because the Bible as a whole is actually one big story. And I think to really understand the context of Esther... We need to see where it fits in that big story. So, flashback. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to run you through the biblical context of Esther. So let's take it all the way back to the Israelites in bondage in Egypt. Moses is raised up. Moses takes them out of Egypt. They go into the desert they're going from, the, from Egypt to the Promised Land. It's a 40-day journey on foot. It takes them 40 years. It takes them 40 years because they are very, very silly. Because they are people, like we are. And they fall, and they fall into, into idolatry and all sorts of things. And as a result, God keeps them in the desert, wandering around. Whilst they're in the desert... Now, this part's important for our story in Esther. Whilst they're in the desert, they are attacked by a tribe called the Amalekites. So the Amalekites were a long-standing enemy of the Jews. They battled several times, but most notably, 
Well, notably rather, in Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 to 14, we read the following. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men to go and fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses ordered. And Moses, Aaron and Hur went on top of the hill. As long as Moses held his hands in the air, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. So when Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat down. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steadily, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Hold on to that little piece of information. So the Israelites continue through the desert. They enter the promised land. Joshua takes them through the rivers into the the promised land. They conquer Jericho. All's good. They are in the promised land. Life is wonderful. Tripping over my own notes here. So once they're in the promised land, there's the era of the judges, uh, the last of which is Samuel. So I don't know if you remember Samuel. You'll remember Samuel. So Samuel is, um, so he's the last of the judges. And whilst he's in office, the people, they say, they say, they say uh, we want a king. We want a king. We don't want to just be led by priests. Like, we want kings like everyone else. Everyone's got a king and I want a king, essentially. So God says, you're not going to like it, but okay, I'll give you a king. And so God, through Joshua, sorry, through Samuel, anoints Saul. So Saul is the first king of Israel. Uh, And during Saul's reign... God commanded Saul in 1 Samuel 15, 3 to attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death the men, women, children, infants, cattle, sheep, camels, and donkeys. That's pretty comprehensive. And seems pretty harsh. But we'll see why God says that. I mean, he's already promised. He's already stated that uh, he will completely blot out the name of Amalek. But here is a direct order to Saul to follow that through. But Saul did not do what God commanded. Saul, he killed almost everyone, but he decided to let just a few live. He let the king and his family live. I guess he decided it would be beneficial to have, you know, a pet king I guess he thought people would see that he's got this this ex-king following him around, bowing and advising him and go, wow, Saul, you must be so powerful. See, he saw some benefit in almost completing the job. Plus, this guy might have had some valuable insights. We don't know. He he, he was clearly a ruler. So maybe he thought, I'm going to use this guy's insight Oh, this is another one of those preacher habits that I need to... Adjusting the stand. Here we go. So, the reason I've told you all of this stuff is that Haman in Esther is an Amalekite. If Saul had dealt with the Amalekites as God had instructed him, then Esther, Mordecai, and the rest of the Jews wouldn't be facing death 500 years later as we are reading the book of Esther. Saul's failure to obey God almost brought the destruction of God's people. So, after Saul came David. After David came Solomon and a host of other kings and rulers. With the nation of Israel eventually turning from God and descending into idol worship and all sorts of evil. The end result was that they were booted out of the promised land. They were exiled. And from there, the people of Israel were scattered across the Persian Empire. 
which brings us to King Ahasuerus, or, as it may say in your Bibles, Xerxes. So Xerxes is the Persian name of the king believed to be Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus is the Hebrew name. So same guy, two different names. So if one of your Bibles says one, another Bible says the other, don't panic, same guy. So mine says, mine says Xerxes, so I'm going to just say Xerxes today. So that brings us up to where we are now. That brings us up to Esther. So I'm going to do a quick recap of the book of Esther now. I know I'm doing a lot of storytelling at the moment, but it all helps to get everything in context. So chapter one. The king is having 180 days of feasting to boast to his friends and allies to display his wealth and power and get everyone behind him for further conquests on the road to world domination. He calls for Vashti, his wife, to flaunt her in front of a room full of drunk men. She refuses and he discards her like an old iPhone. He says, that's enough. This one's out of date. No, thank you. This one doesn't do what I want it to do anymore. Bring me the iPhone 10. <laughs> Chapter 2. The king searches for a new wife. Esther, who is living under the protection of her cousin. She is a Jew. Um, she's living under the protection of her cousin, who, who acts more as an adopted father. Uh, that's Mordecai. She is selected to be the new queen. Mordecai, in his wisdom, instructs Esther to keep her nationality, her, her background, a secret. Whilst Mordecai is waiting at the city gates, he foils a plot to kill the king. And by telling Esther what he heard, she, she lets the king know, and it gets foiled. This is recorded in the book of the king's reign. Is everyone with me so far? Okay. I feel like I need to slow down. Chapter 3, Haman is elevated. And the king commands everyone to kneel down and honour him. Mordecai refuses to bow. Haman is enraged upon, and upon finding out Mordecai is a Jew, decides it would not be enough to just kill this man who dishonoured him. He wants to kill him, his whole family, his whole people. He went to the king and convinced him to, to issue a decree to destroy, kill and annihilate the Jews and then plunder their goods, all in the name of the king. And the king foolishly agrees without even realising what's going on. Chapter 4. Mordecai learns of the decree. He tears his clothes and puts on sackcloth, mourning at the, the gate of the king. Mordecai, Mordecai tells Esther what Haman has done and asks her to go and intercede for the life of their people. But she's afraid. She was afraid, but she was, she was persuaded that it was her duty. That only she was in a position to fulfill this task. She asked Mordecai to gather the Jews together to fast and pray for three days before she entered the presence of the king. Chapter 5. We're nearly up to speed. Chapter 5. Esther approaches the king. He extends his, extends his scepter and she is allowed to enter unharmed. He asks her what her request is. And she invites him and Haman to a banquet. During the meal, the king asks again what Esther wants. And she replies by asking them to a second banquet. Haman floats out of the hall feeling so incredibly important to be honoured to have been invited to such a prestigious private feast with just him, the king and the queen. But Mordecai refused to bow to him again as he walks out of that feast. This was too much for Haman. This was far too much for Haman. He went home, he spoke to his friends and his wife, and they decided enough was enough, he was going to kill him. So he builds, a, what is it, 75 cubits, sorry, 50 cubit pole or um, gallows. Again, this is another one of those ones, some of your Bibles might say pole, some of them might say gallows. Um, so he builds this 75-foot gallows. So 75 foot is, I, th I think I worked it out, it's about 12 and a bit of me. Straight up. It's like a tennis court high 
So that's pretty big. That's, he's trying to make a statement there. <laughs> so he writes this and he, he plans to go and speak to the king to ask for permission to murder his enemy. Chapter six, the king wakes up in the middle of the night, reads the book of his reign and he realizes that nothing had been done to honor Mordecai who, um, to honor Mordecai who saved his life. So he asks who's in the court He wants someone to advise him on how he should honour this man. Haman comes in, thinks that the king is talking about him, and asks for pretty much everything apart from the queen. In his mind, he is so important that everything the king has should be his. The king, I think, sees what's in his heart here. And he says, go and do everything you said to Haman. And the reason I think he sees what's in Haman's heart Sorry, not to Haman, to Mordecai. And the reason I think he sees what's in Haman's heart here is because he says, and don't neglect anything you've just said. As if he knew that if he sent him out, he might not give him all the bells and whistles that he just asked for himself. So he spends the day honouring Mordecai. And after the worst day of his life, he goes home to seek the counsel of his wife and his friends, and they say... You are doomed, pal. If, if this guy, Haman, the guy you've been trying to kill, the guy whose people you're trying to wipe out is the king's new best mate, then you are stuffed. And at that moment, we jump into chapter seven. So, the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. And as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? I will give it to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, and it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answers, If I have found favour with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we were merely to be sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet. Because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Who is he, the man who has dared to do such a thing? Esther said, An adversary, an enemy, this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified. No kidding. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling onto the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king's said, a pole reaching, or it may say gallows, reaching to a height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. And it had been set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, impale him on it. So they impaled him on it. They impaled him on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. That's a big moment in this story. The bad guy finally gets it. Woo! So, let me just read verses one and two again. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. And as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again asked Queen Esther, what is your petition It will be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. So when I'm reading this, from from an earthly perspective, I'm thinking, why is she, why why two banquets? Like, why didn't she ask him when she went, when she risked her life to go into his presence and he said, what is it? Great, I'm really glad to see you. What, What do you want? I'll give it to you. Why didn't she ask him then? Why didn't she say right at that moment, Lord, oh, my, my king, please spare my life. 
He was obviously very happy to see her. But no, she said, let's have a, a feast. So they have this feast. All the players are there. All the same people are at that feast that are at this second feast. So what was going through her mind? Why, did she bottle it? I don't think so. I don't think so. I, I just think what happened here was that she was in tune with God and listening to him and taking direction from him. Because if she had done it at either of those two points, then Haman's destruction would not have been as, as securely sealed. Because it was that night after the first feast that Mordecai was brought to the king's attention. And the reason I think she was so in tune with God in this is her preparation. You see, before we go to God with things, we need to be prepared. And Esther was prepared. Her preparation in prayer and fasting had paid off. She was clearly attuned to God's voice. There was no good reason why she wouldn't have made her petition to the king at the first banquet. As I say, all the players were there. They're in exactly the same position. The only thing different was God's timing. By preparing with prayer and fasting, she put herself in a position to hear God, to follow his lead, to take his direction. Let me ask you, how's your prayer life? When was the last time you fasted? Now, I'm not saying these things to beat you over the head. I'm just trying to spark something in you. Are we attuned to the voice of God in our life? Are we making time to be quiet in his presence and listen for the still, small voice of God? When we have decisions to make or difficult situations to face, do we bring ourselves before the throne and listen to his quiet promptings or do we simply make our plans to the best of our ability and go, I think we're good? Because let me tell you, it might, you might be successful that way. But unless we are listening to God, unless we are in step with the Spirit and moving in his timing, things are not going to go as well as they should. See, sometimes God makes us step out in faith before we feel we are ready, before we know the plan. And we like to know the plan, don't we? I do. If I got up here without notes this morning, I would be an absolute wreck. I like having a plan. I don't always stick to it, but knowing it's there is useful. But yet, sometimes God makes us step out in faith before we know the extent of his plan. And in order to step out in faith, we need to be listening to what God is saying. See, we see this in chapter five when Esther went before the king. She had to step into that throne room knowing it was certain death unless the king reached out his scepter. And she had to step into that throne room before the scepter was raised. There's a risk. There's a risk to moving in faith. Abraham... He had to raise the knife above his head with every intention of plunging it down before God said, wait. Noah, he had to build, build a boat in the desert before it started to rain. When Joshua was leading the people of Israel across the Jordan, they sent the ark first. And it wasn't until the guys carrying the ark all had their feet wet in the waters of the Jordan. It wasn't until that point, and they waited. It wasn't until then that God stopped the river flowing so that the people could cross over. It's risky business. It is a risky business to follow the calling of God, to listen to the voice of God and step out and follow that direction. And sometimes it means stepping out before we think we're ready. And sometimes it means waiting when we're convinced we're ready. As in this case. 
Sometimes he makes us wait when we are confident that we are perfectly positioned to move forward because his perfect timing has not yet arrived. Like I say, everything was ready from the moment of that first banquet, from an earthly perspective. She had the king's favor, she had everyone who needed to be there, but God's timing is perfect. God's will is sovereign. And she put herself in a position where she could appreciate that. Now, I wish I could say I found this a really easy thing to do, don't you? Because hands up, I do not. I really don't. There are times where I find this incredibly difficult, especially in those times when our lives seem to rock us far beyond what we can cope with. But we must follow Esther's example here by seeking God's direction at all times and in those particular, and in particular rather, those times when everything seems stacked against us. Trusting God's timing and listening for his direction is hard. It can be painful. It is, without doubt, a discipline. But here's the flip side to that. It can be a blessing, liberating, joyful even, to know that regardless of what's going on in your life, in your family, in your work situations, God stands sovereign over it all. He will work all things for your good. He has a plan for your life. To know that God has, the, the, the same God that created the fabric of the universe and wove the stars in the sky, that separated the dry land from the sea, the God that knit you together in your mother's womb, has you in his hands and he will never let you go. The same God that tells us we can be confident that he who began a good work in us will see it through to completion. When we humble ourselves and we pray and throw ourselves at the throne of heaven, things change. When we throw ourselves at the throne of heaven like Esther did, we too can hear his voice, receive his direction and let him steer us through those impossible situations through those incredibly difficult times, through those hurts, through those wrongs that we've experienced, through that person that we just can't forgive. It is impossible in our own strength. But we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. That's verses one and two. Let's read on. Then Queen Esther answered, if I have found favour with you, your majesty, if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. Spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. Look at the contrast here between the way Esther approaches things and the king and Haman approach stuff. She is cautious. She is shrewd and she is well thought out in her approach. She knows that this king is a little bit unstable. She knows he holds the power of life and death. She knows he does not like being told how to rule. And so when she comes to him, she comes to him with godly wisdom. In Matthew 10, 16, it says, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. And I think that's a perfect description of what Esther's modeling here. Sheep among wolves. Referring to the persecution that the disciples would face. Esther was certainly a sheep in the presence of this king wolf, in the, in the presence of this wolf, Haman. Being a sheep speaks in the, in the way that sheep are completely defenseless against wolves. They have to entirely rely on the shepherd 
to keep them safe. On the guidance, the protection, and the reassurance of, the, of that shepherd who is on watch. See, the wolves that Jesus is referring to in this, this Matthew text would be, would be the Pharisees who would seek to persecute and destroy. But the, the principle applies to all Christians who faced hostile oppression to the gospel. And as Andy reminded us a few weeks back, there are still many, many Christians facing death and persecution for the sake of the gospel. And we live in a world that is becoming more and more hostile to the gospel. And we will face more persecution as we stand for truth, for the biblical truth. And whilst it's clear that scripture, in Scripture that God's people are defenceless without him, he has given us the ability to be shrewd, to be as shrewd as snakes, so wise as snakes, and innocent as doves. The Tyndale New Testament commentary says, Christians are not to be gullible simpletons, but neither are they to be rogues. Innocent is literally unmixed, pure, transparent. It demands no naivety, but an irreproachable honesty. In her approach, Esther is shrewd, but not manipulative, innocent, but not ignorant. She is aware of how volatile that king is. She knows he is powerful and reckless, impulsive and unwise in his decision making. She's seen him just discard Vashti. She knows that he has condemned her people to death without even knowing what he's doing. A fool with too much power who takes things too lightly. Verses five and six go on to say, King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where is he, the man who has dared to do such a thing? Now, I like the New King James translation on this one that says, where is he, the fool who has decided in his heart to do such evil? You see, the king knows, the king understands that evil is a heart matter. Ecclesiastes 10.2 tells us that the heart of the wise inclines to the right, but the heart of the fool inclines to the left. Just illustrating the point that, that where our heart is dictates our actions. Psychologist Jonathan Haidt puts it a different way. He paints a picture using an elephant and a rider. So imagine you've got this big, massive elephant. There's a little rider on top. The elephant is your heart, your heart attitude, your emotions. Uh, and the rider is your, is your brain, your, your logical thinking. If you are going down a path, there is only so much that your logical mind can do. If your heart desires to go one way, in this case the elephant, that elephant's going to go that way. The only way it doesn't is if it is trained if it is changed, if its will is broken and redirected. So my question this morning is, is what are you filling your heart with? Are you guarding your heart against sin or are you just letting it live in there? Are you nurturing the good things that God has placed within you through prayer and obedience. Luke 6.45 says, a man, a good man, brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And we can see here that Haman's heart is full of pride. It's full of envy, it's full of anger, and it's full of hatred. Verse 6, Esther says, an adversary and an enemy, this vile Haman. Whew. 
I really like that line. <laughs> That's, that, for me, is where this, this, this whole story peaks. Haman's plan was to kill, destroy, plunder the property of the Jews, completely wiping them from the face of the earth. And as an Amalekite, he took the opportunity to turn a personal insult into a full-scale campaign of ethnic cleansing in retaliation for his tribe's past. And he was so very nearly successful. And all because Saul had failed to follow God's direction to deal with the Amalekites 500 years earlier. See, when God highlights something in our lives, when God highlights sin in our lives, when God highlights unforgiveness in our lives, whatever it may be, when God tells us to deal with something, he means deal with it completely. Not 60%, not 80%, not 99.9%. Completely. When he calls us on our sin, how often do we take the sole option? We deal with most of it, most of, of the problem, but we keep hold of the things that we really like or the things that we think might kind of help us further down the line. We all do it. But the truth is this, if we fail to deal with our sin, we will come back. It will come back, rather. Time and time again, to damage us, striking at us, seeking to pull us down and pull us away from God. Dealing with sin is not something that we can do on our own. If you're, if you're in a situation where you think, I've been wrestling with this sin, I've been wrestling with it, and I'm not getting anywhere, so I might as well just give up. No, you are missing the point. We don't have to do this on our own. We don't have to. It's done. We have the resources of heaven through prayer and the encouragement of our Christian brothers and sisters through accountability. Verse 7, the king got up in a rage. He left his wine and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. The king is furious. He is dumbstruck. And from, I can only imagine, a, from a combination of, of rage and embarrassment, Haman has played him like a fiddle. He's used and abused the king's powers and exposed his foolishness by agreeing to do something that he didn't even understand. He made the king complicit in an attempt to murder not only the man who saved his life, but his very own wife. Imagine finding out that your best friend had nearly fooled you into killing your own wife. Or if you don't have a wife, your husband, or your children, or your best friend. Can you imagine that? Imagine being almost responsible for killing the person you love most in this world. I think I'd be fairly angry as well. He was embarrassed that he did not see Haman for what he was, this vile adversary, as Esther put it, who only served the king as a means of getting everything the king had. The rest of the chapter goes on to say, but Haman, realising that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the words left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, a pole reaching to a height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up and helped the king. The king said, impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on it. They impaled him on the pole he had set up 
for Mordecai. Whew. Haman is completely exposed, completely undone, defeated and awaiting the judgment of the king. With no real hope of survival, he throws himself at the mercy of Esther, who will not make the same mistake as Saul. Haman's plan, as verse 4 said, had been to destroy, kill and annihilate the Jews, then take everything they owned. Satan has a similar mandate. We are told that Satan is a thief who wants to own only to steal, kill and destroy. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? The undoing of Haman's plans in the book of Esther serves as a picture for the undoing of Satan's plans. See, like Haman, Satan was jealous of his king. Satan was the worship leader in heaven and he wanted what God had. And he was furious when people refused to bow to him. So he was expelled from heaven. He was cast down. When God creates man and gives him authority, Satan is furious. You won't give me what you're going to give them. So he sets out to undo and unpick and twist God's creation. In the Garden of Eden, he corrupts Adam and Eve, leading on to something called Proto-Evangelium. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but essentially it's a posh way of saying the first gospel. Where in Genesis 3, God says, I will put enmity between you and her offspring. He will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. Letting Satan know that one day his treachery will be dealt with. His power will be stripped. Hell will be destroyed. And it will come through the line of Adam and Eve. So Satan wastes no time. It's like, well, if that's how it's going to happen, I'm going to start killing them off as quick as possible. And he inspires Cain to kill Abel. Later on, God revealed that the Messiah would come through the family line of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, who would later be changed, have his name changed to Israel. And when the people of Israel were in slavery in Egypt, Satan was happy. He's like, great, keep them oppressed, no problem. But when he realised that someday someone would rise up, that Moses was coming to free them and get them out of the exile, he inspired the king to kill all the babies. Like, kill them all. Stop them from ever, ever being a threat. But God is sovereign. God knew exactly what the plan was, and he made it so that, that Moses was rescued, put in that basket and floated down the river. The 12 tribes escape, and one of, them, one, of, one of which, one of those tribes was particularly scary to Satan, and that was the tribe of Judah. And the reason that was scary is because Jacob prophetically spoke in Genesis 49 over Judah about the Messiah, the promised one, the breaker of chains, the one who was going to come and destroy Satan once and for all, coming through that line. Many years later, as I said at the start, the 12 tribes demanded a king and Saul was raised up. Now, Saul wasn't really a threat to Satan because Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was not the threat anymore. It was narrowing down. But when David was anointed as his, pre his, as his follower, as his, not predecessor, successor, there we go, that Satan got nervous. He got twitchy. And from that moment on, the word says that a... I have to see, my notes are too small. Uh, a harmful spirit came upon Saul who tried to kill David. All of a sudden, David went from being like a son to Saul to being the enemy who he was desperate to kill. Many years later, there were, there were a number of attempts to wipe out the Jews. One was particularly close. King Jehoram's whole family were wiped out apart from one son who was saved. We jump ahead to the New Testament. When Herod hears that the, the, the Messiah is being born, what does he do? 
He tries to kill every child of that age to stop him ever coming. And once again, God is sovereign and he sidesteps it. The plans of the enemy are always being frustrated. Then as a man, oh, he thought he'd done it. He thought he'd done it. He thought, as a man, he got Jesus to the cross. And he was gloating. I tell you now, you ever seen the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, as Aslan's being taken up to the the stone table and all the the bad guys are going, and they're having a little party. I imagine that's exactly what it was like in hell. They thought they got him. And they put Jesus on the cross and they nailed him in. And he was hanging there and he was dying and he was calling out. He was calling out to God in heaven, saying, why have you forsaken me? And Satan was laughing it up. Only he did not realise that when he nailed Jesus to the cross, he was crucifying his own power. He thought the mission was complete. But just like Haman, what he designed to kill his enemy became the instrument of his own destruction. His power was gone. Not only was it gone, it is gone from now till eternity. But Jesus rose. He rose again in victory and in power. He is alive today. He is real. Satan is defeated and awaiting final judgment. 1 John 3.8 says, He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning, but the purpose of the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Amen. On the gallows, Haman was dealt with, finally and completely. He reaped the rewards of his foolishness and of the evil in his heart. On the cross, Jesus dealt with Satan, finally and completely. He dealt with my sin, he dealt with your sin, he dealt with all sin for eternity. Because of the blood of Jesus, death is dead and hell destroyed. The chains of sin are broken and we are free from condemnation and alive in Christ. Amen. So let's revisit those four points that we started with. When the balance of power is against us, it is an illusion because we have the all-powerful God on our side. If God is for us, then who can be against us? And therefore, we can always have hope in the trials of life. Number two, God deals with sin absolutely. In the cross, everything is covered. That's why Jesus says it is finished, not it is almost finished, it is done. When we deal with sin in our lives, it is absolutely necessary that we deal with issues completely. Anything less is an insult to the complete work of the cross. Number three, God's judgment on sin is absolute and it is dangerous for us to harbour it in our hearts. Number four, where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. But our experience of grace comes through faith and obedience to God. As Emily so wonderfully demonstrated with that, with that passage of scripture earlier on, it is through faith. So how will you choose to respond this morning? You can either stay locked up in fear and unrepentance or you can allow God to release you into a victorious walk of faith in complete dependence on him. Let's choose to deal with sin absolutely. Since God is for us, who can be against us? I urge you to examine your heart today. Ask the Holy Spirit to highlight any sin, any forgotten sin, any unrepented sin in your heart that needs dealing with this morning and deal with it. 
I encourage you to make a decision this morning to deal with it once and for all. Share it with someone. Share with someone the choice that you are making to pursue right living. And if God prompts you, speak to someone. You trust and ask them to help keep you accountable. I'm not just here talking at you. We are not just here for a Christian social club. We are here to disciple each other. We are here to grow more like Christ. And that does sometimes mean being vulnerable. Okay? Be prepared to be vulnerable. We are sheep among wolves. We cannot defend ourselves apart from Christ. Two Peter, one three to four says, "His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life, through our knowledge of Him, who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these, He has given us very, um, sorry, given us very great and precious promises that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world." Sorry, escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you, Lord, that you are sovereign in all things. Lord, we recognize our complete dependence upon you. Lord, we ask you to shine a light on any part of us that needs to, to die, Lord. Anything that you have said, eradicate that from your life. And we've gone, mostly. Lord, anything that is not of you, Lord, let it be burned up like chaff in a fire. Lord, help us to be vulnerable with one another in pursuit of you. Lord, let us be open to your guiding, Lord. Help us to, to develop our, our time with you, Lord, to develop our recognition of your voice. Lord, help us to get that quiet time before the throne of heaven. Guide us, Father. In your precious name, amen.